today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel 7, 4 through 11, and verses 41 through 51. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog? that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut his head off with the sword. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, good morning, uh, whether you're joining us um, because you just woke up and you're still in your PJs or you're watching a saved version of this uh, online uh, later. Welcome to Exilic Online and our very first uh, virtual service. Uh, this actually reminds me of when I lived in China 20 years ago and um, we would meet for house churches uh, on Sunday and so we would uh, actually be in a gathering much like this and we would jump from house to house because there is no freedom of religion or freedom of assembly there and um, in order to not have a pattern of the same people coming at the same time we would um, go to different people's homes at different times and we would gather much like this and what we're experiencing right now is a glimpse of what churches all around the world experience not uh, because of a virus but because of persecution and so I'm, I'm hoping and praying that we have a uh, deeper appreciation not only for the freedom of assembly and religion, but uh, the community and body of Christ. And uh, secondly, this also reminds me of when our church first started. Uh, before we launched our formal services, uh, there was a group of five of us, and we would meet. Uh, we met for nine weeks straight in someone's living room, and 
uh, we sort of mimicked what a Sunday service would look like. And I remember asking them um, when it came time to, you know, the Bible, I was like, is it okay if we just do a Bible study instead of me preaching? But they were like, no, you have to preach. And so I stood up there with four people down there just watching. And at first, it was crazy awkward and weird, as you can imagine. Um, but we got over the weirdness and awkwardness. And I suspect that this is going to be a little bit weird and awkward for us as well, just because we're not used to singing in front of a computer or, or a television screen. But I do think that the more we do it and the more we're able to overcome our awkwardness, uh, it'll become more and more familiar to us. And I think that's important because we don't know how long this is going to last. And the second reason why I say that is because... Um, we, we care about the nourishment of your soul, and um, we care about the glory of God. And so what we need you to do on your end for next week and potentially the weeks after is to do two things. Uh, we need you to be fully engaged, and that's hard because of all the distractions that are around us uh, in the comforts of our own home. But we not only need you to be fully engaged and not distracted, but we need you to fully participate as well. And the more you do that, uh, I think the more comfortable uh, it will be for all of us. Um, I also want to take this time to thank our staff. Um, I want to thank Brian and for David. Uh, Gene and Jeannie, while they were on vacation, they were actually working because it was probably the craziest week we've ever had. And um, we've been communicating nonstop and meeting nonstop and thinking of creative ways to um, sort of uh, manage uh, the situation. And so I'm deeply grateful for our team. Uh, I'm grateful for DK, um, uh, for David Liu and Phil Park uh, in the back. Um, they've really, because of them, were able to do something like this. And so I'm really grateful for them. Heidi and Dr. Harvey for their thoughtfulness and their feedback on how we can uh, handle this situation as well. So I'm really grateful for our staff. I'm thankful for our committee heads who have been relaying all the information to our committee committees. Um, and so thank, thank you for all the work that you've been doing and for doing that in an expedient manner. And thank you to all of you who have um, offered to help in various different ways. And so I'm really, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for our community. And um, I'm hoping and praying that uh, we'll be able to gather together uh, soon enough. Um, with the sermon, which I prepared starting Thursday night, <laughs> um, uh, I thought that it would be wise if we uh, took a pause from 1 Corinthians and we did something in response to all that's happening right now in our city and in our world. And so um, we're going to do a sermon uh, basically on COVID-19 and what to do when uh, we feel afraid, because this is not only something that's affecting us uh, locally, but this is something that's affecting us globally as well. Uh, it's affecting the elderly. It's affecting small businesses, large institutions. It's affecting our economy. It's affecting um, the church. And so I thought it would be wise if we took a break from First Corinthians, which will start next week, and we did something on COVID-19 because this virus is uh, generating a lot of fear. And uh, so we want to uh, talk about that. Uh, one of the things that we've been saying over and over again is that um, while the greatest command in the Bible is to love God with our hearts and the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbors, uh, the most repeated and the most frequent command in the Bible is do not fear. And I think the reason for that is because, and it's pervasive throughout scripture, and I, th I think the reason for that is because to, to be human is not only to err, but to be human is also to be uh, very, very afraid. 
Stephen King, uh, the writer once said, uh, I like to scare people and people like to be scared. And so uh, there is no one here that doesn't experience fear. In fact, fear is something that we're ex we experience all the time. And so the question is, how do we, how do we respond in light of the, the fears that we're facing? How do we be courageous during times like this? Um, Alistair McIntyre is a uh, Scottish uh, philosopher, and he wrote a very important book called After Virtue. And in the book, he says that one of the top learning objectives of ancient curriculums was the topic of courage. And the reason for that is because in the ancient world, people were constantly faced with imminent death. And so there, were, there was always a threat of invaders. There was always a threat of plagues, the threat of famine and having no food, and the threat of disease. And so one of the top learning objectives in ancient curriculums was the idea of courage, because without it, people would die. And um, I would say that today, um, courage is not something that uh, we're formally taught anymore because we're not faced with imminent death all the time. And so to a certain degree, courage uh, for us as modern people is sort of a lost virtue. And that's not to say that we can't be courageous. We certainly still can be. Uh, but when we display courage, it's more episodic than a part of our daily lifestyle. So I'll give you an example. Uh, imagine you're riding on a subway and you see an elderly woman being harassed, our natural instinct today isn't to go and defend that person and to help them. Our natural instinct today is to freeze and be paralyzed and we sort of automatically go into self-preservation mode uh, rather than displaying any sense of heroism or courage. And the reason for that is because we're not used to displaying courage. And so our fears, what our fears end up doing is it ends up swallowing uh, any sense of uh, courage uh, that we can uh, muster up. And this sort of explains the reason why, even though we are the most technological people in history, the most scientific people in history, we are uh, the most informed people in history, we have um, organic food, we have modern medicine, we have advanced security systems, we have cars that drive by itself, uh, we have everything. And so to a certain degree, we should be the least fearful people in history. And yet, even though we have all of these things, we still tend to uh, be afraid. And so what we end up doing when we feel these fears, whatever they might be from, and it could be uh, a fear of loneliness, it could be a fear of um, mediocrity, not doing anything significant with my life. Uh, it could be a fear of commitment, a fear of public speaking. Uh, it could be a fear that you won't be able to have kids. We all have fears. What we tend to do when we experience these fears is that we look to certain things to uh, assuage and console our fears. So for example, if you might have a fear of mediocrity, you look to your resume, success, performance to console your fear of mediocrity and not doing anything significant with your life. If you fear loneliness, what you do is you turn to a relationship to console your fears. If you fear criticism and uh, you you not you know, liking the criticism that you're receiving, you look to perfectionism uh, to avoid that at all costs. And so we all experience fears, and so what we do is we turn to different sources to console and assuage our fears. But when we turn to the wrong sources to console our fears uh, for the basis of our courage, what that leads to is a very brittle and fragile life. And that's sort of what we're seeing right now and what we're seeing in our passage with uh, the life of Goliath as, as well. And so um, most commentators uh, say that Goliath stood at uh, six foot nine. 
that's sounds that doesn't sound very impressive to us today, but even today, seeing a six foot nine person is far more uncommon than common. Uh, it, particularly back in the ancient days when the average height was five foot three. Uh, we also know that Goliath uh, wore a coat of scaled armor that weighed 120 pounds. And so most people back then, perhaps someone like David, was five foot three and they weighed 120 pounds. And so he was uh, physically a very impressive uh, uh, figure. And he was not only physically very impressive, but he also um, was a very skilled fighter. Uh, he was a champion, he was a gladiator. He, in many ways, he was trained like a Spartan ever since he was young. And we also know that he had a, a lot of uh, impressive gear. He had the coat of skilled armor, he had a giant shield, a sword, a javelin. And so because of all of these things, his physique, the way he looked, his resume, his experience, his gadgets, uh, Goliath had a lot of bravado and courage, and we read in verse 43 and 44 uh, how much uh, bravado Goliath had. And in 43 to 44, he says, am I a dog that you come at, come at me with sticks? Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds uh, of the air and the wild animals. Uh, but what we see in this passage is that the bravado and the courage that Goliath had is really based upon an illusion because of the sources that he was basing it upon. And if we juxtapose Goliath's life and King Saul's life, we can see why Goliath uh, has a, an illusion of control. King Saul was very much like Goliath. He was physically very impressive. That's one of the reasons why he was chosen uh, to be king. He was also a fighter and a gladiator and a very successful one at that. And he also had a lot of um, high-tech gear, which is why he offers his armor and his sword to David to use against uh, Goliath. And so in many ways, Saul was almost as impressive as Goliath, but he wasn't as impressive. And because Goliath was stronger, bigger, and more experienced, everything that King Saul had built his life upon uh, his physique, his experience, his kingliness uh, sort of comes crashing down like a stack of cards. Uh, you have to realize that uh, in the ancient times, kings were not only political figures, but they were also fighters. But where is King Saul in this story? He's not on the front lines of the battlefield like a general, but he's hiding away in his palace. And so this king is not acting very kingly. And the point is this. Whenever something stronger or more powerful invades our lives and it sort of pugilistically challenges the things that we've built our lives upon, so whether it might be, again, our, the way that we look, our money, um, our career, our relationships, whenever something more powerful and stronger invades our life and challenges those things to a contest and it beats those things up, what ends up happening is that our lives are shaken and we realize our fragility and how brittle our lives uh, really are. And uh, the coronavirus in that regard is a very good teacher. Uh, the coronavirus right now is very, very powerful and it's pugilistically challenging all the things that we built our lives upon. And this virus, it doesn't care if you're a six foot nine gladiator or a seven foot NBA athlete. This virus doesn't care if you're a famous actor. Uh, this virus doesn't care if you're the most powerful country in the world. 
Uh, it has the power to sicken us. It has the power to kill us. It has the power to um, break down our economy, and not just our economy, but the global economy. And because this virus is so powerful, it's shaking everything that we built our life upon. Uh, it's shaking our health, our families, our economy, everything. And so as a result of that, um, more and more our our fragility is sort of being exposed. That, that sense of control and courage that we used to have, that bubble is now being popped um, by this virus. And that is something that Saul has experienced by the presence of Goliath. And that is what Goliath is about to experience because of the presence and the power of David. And David's power is not contingent upon his physique or his experience as a fighter. He was a shepherd. He's probably five foot, 320 pounds. But David's sense of Courage is not based upon himself, but it's based upon his trust in God. And so we read uh, in verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So let me set the scene for us one more time, even though this story might be very familiar to you because of the Bible or Malcolm Gladwell or, or just our culture's understanding of David and Goliath. But to set the scene up, the, the Philistines are on one hill, the Israelites are on another hill, and there is a standstill for 40 days because in between these two hills is uh, the Valley of Elah. And Whatever camp goes down the hill first, they're automatically at a disadvantage because in combat, to be lower is to be at a disadvantage, to be higher is to be at an advantage. And so neither camp is making a move because they don't want to be disadvantaged. Secondly, the stakes are super high because whoever loses becomes the slaves to the winners. And so they're, they're sort of at a standstill. And so uh, Goliath then proposes an ancient form of practice, ancient form of warfare called single combat. And so single combat is one representative from the army uh, fighting on behalf of the army and another representative fighting on behalf of their army. And whoever wins this single combat, that victory is transferred to the entire army. And so this avoids a lot of bloodshed, unnecessary bloodshed, and just the two people can um, fight off. And so for 40 days, morning and night, Goliath comes down to the Valley of Elah and he says to the Israelite uh, army up on the hill, which one of you cowards wants to fight me? And you can almost hear the Israelite foot soldiers sort of their knees shaking and a puddle of pee sort of forming by their feet because they're so scared and they're so nervous. And he does this 40 times, uh, for 80 times, twice a day, morning and evening for 40 days. And finally, on the 40th day, uh, the shepherd boy named David comes to give some food to his bros who are in the Israelite camp, and he hears about what this Philistine named Goliath is doing. And in verse 31, David says to the Israelite army, let no one lose heart. And basically, that's another way of saying, let no one be discouraged, but everyone should have courage. And David volunteers himself to be that single uh, combat soldier to go up against uh, Goliath. Now, you have to realize that this is sort of a cross match because there are three types of fighters uh, in the ancient world. There was cavalry who rode on horses. Uh, there was infantry, which were foot soldiers with the javelin, the spears, and the, and the swords. And then there was artillery, uh, the bow and arrow people. 
based upon this text, we know that Goliath was a part of infantry based upon his shield and sword. David, uh, all he had was a slingshot, so he was barely even artillery. So this is like the Incredible Hulk going against Legolas. So it's not a very fair matchup. But he comes, and we know how the story ends. Uh, David kills the giant Goliath, and after he kills him, he chops off his head. So let me, let me set the scene one more time. The Philistine camp is up here. The Israelite camp is up here. They send down one ambassador or one representative. They do all the work. The camp gets all the benefits. In that person's victory, the camp gets the entire victory transferred to them. I mean, what story does that sound like? That really is the story of the shepherd boy named Jesus who comes from the line of David. And in his victory, we get all the victory. In his work, we get all the work. It's transferred to our account because of what he has done. And there's more um, foreshadowing that's happening in this story as well. So if you think about uh, Goliath uh, challenging the Israelites for 40 days, what happens with Jesus? The devil challenges Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. Um, we know that Goliath wore a coat of scaled armor, so that made him look like a six foot nine snake. When is another time we read about a snake? In Genesis 3.15, there is also another snake. After um, Goli uh, David slays Goliath, what does he do? He takes the sword, Goliath's sword, and he cuts off his head and he holds it up. What do we read about in Genesis 3.15? That there would be someone from the line of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent, and as they do so, their heel would be bruised. And what's that, what that's really pointing to is the fact that Jesus would come and destroy the greatest Goliath of all, which is sin and death. And as he crushes the head of this behemoth, his heel would be bruised on the cross uh, for our sins. And so what this story is really pointing to is the fact that Jesus is our greater David. And in his victory, we have victory. Uh, right now, there are uh, 100,000 cases of COVID-19, um, close to 4,000 deaths, maybe more by today. Um, and so this disease is um, very aggressive. Um, it is contagious. Uh, it is powerful. And it's generating a lot of fear. Now I want you to imagine another kind of virus that is even more aggressive than COVID-19, that is even more contagious than COVID-19, and has a power not only to kill older people, but every single one of us. And there is a virus like that, uh, that is killing all of us eventually. And in the Bible, that virus is sin, and it has infected every single one of us. And the story of Christianity is that um, God came down uh, to be the cure for our sins. Because this cure cannot be found in a laboratory. It cannot be found in the lecture halls of our Ivy Leagues. Uh, this is a cure that we cannot manufacture or uh, invent on our own. And so that is the reason why God came down to be the cure for our sins. Uh, in the 19th century, there was a, um, you, may, you may have heard, some of you may have heard this story before, but in the 19th century, there was a uh, missionary to Molokai, Hawaii, uh, named Joseph de Vusiter. And he went to Molokai, Hawaii to work with the leper community there. And every morning for worship service, Joseph would begin by saying, my fellow brothers and sisters. 
And one particular morning as Joseph was getting ready for the worship service, he was making a cup of tea. And as he boiled some of the water and was pouring that water onto uh, in, inside his cup, some of the boiling water uh, actually hit his bare feet, but he didn't feel anything. And so he subsequently poured a couple more drops of boiling water onto his feet, but still there was no sensation there. And Joseph automatically knew what had happened to him. He had contracted uh, leprosy. And after being stunned at uh, what just happened to him and um, gathering himself and pulling himself together to get ready for the worship service, he stood in front of all the lepers. And this time, instead of saying, uh, my fellow brothers and sisters, he stood up and opened the worship service by saying, my fellow lepers. <laughs> he had become like one of them. Their life, how they were living, would not be his life. The way that they would die, he would not die. Uh, and that, that story, I mean, is basically what God has done for us. He has become like one of us. He has come down and said, my fellow humans. He took on flesh. Our sins became his sins. Our way of life became his way of life. And the way that we die would eventually be the way that he would die. And so all of our sins are transferred over to him so that we could be healed and uh, forgiven of that, uh, a stronger virus in, in sin. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus doesn't say, I got this. Uh, it wasn't something that was easy. If anything, we know that he was sweating drops like blood, which means that he was in utter anguish. Uh, and I don't know if this is, I mean, David and Brian, you can correct me on this. I don't know if this is theologically orthodox or not. Um, but that anguish is almost sort of like a type of fear. Uh, he did not want to do this, which is why he said, Father, take this cup away from me if, if it's all possible, because he wanted to see if there was another way of doing this, which is why he's in so much agony. Uh, and torture, but that that sort of fear that he's facing doesn't drive him to cowardice, but that fear drives him deeper into the presence of God. And I think I think the presence of fear in and of itself is not a problem. Um, uh, without fear, we could never even see justice. Just like we, without compassion, I mean, without suffering, we could never see compassion. And so, the presence of fear in and of itself is not a bad thing. But it does drive us either towards cowardice or towards courage. And what we see with David, what we see with Jesus, is that that fear drives them deeper uh, into the arms of God. And in light of everything that's happening with our world today, uh, the fears that we're all experiencing, um, that can drive us one of two ways. It can either drive us to be more afraid or drive us to have more courage in a God uh, that is even more powerful than death itself. Uh, so let me close with this. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, lived during the 40s and 50s, and during the 40s and 50s, um, that's when the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb were invented. And because of that, um, there was a lot of fear in, in the global village because these bombs had the power to destroy neighborhoods and entire cities, and if the wrong person got a hold of that button, uh, they could ruin the world. And so in the 40s and 50s, there was a lot of fear. And C.S. Lewis writes a little essay called Living in an Atomic Age. And as, as I read this essay for you, I want you to substitute the word atomic age or atomic bomb with the word coronavirus. Uh, so let me read that for us. Lewis says, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? 
I am tempted to reply why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or as you are already living in an age of cancer or an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motorcycle accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. You and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing children, playing tennis, chatting over a pint, and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate uh, our minds. And uh, so the, 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 the logic is basically this. Um, uh, Albert Camus, uh, I think, once said that, uh, he said, imagine someone comes up to you and says, um, what do you most like to do in life? And so you might say, I love Broadway shows and fine dining. So a person comes up to you and says, okay, for the next four hours, I will pay for any show you want to see and for any restaurant you want to go to. But after those four hours are over, you have to take this poison pill and eat it to your death. Now, would you do that? Now, most people, would, I think everyone would say, no, I am not going to take that poison pill because how am I possibly supposed to enjoy that Broadway show and that fine dining if I know that I'm going to die four hours later? It's impossible. And Camus would say, that's right. Uh, if you know that your imminent death is four hours later, how can you possibly enjoy anything in life? And Camus says, now stretch that four hours to 40 years. Okay. Now, it's not four hours, it's a little bit longer, but how are you supposed to enjoy anything in between if you know that your imminent death is there? And for us, the logic is this. If we know that Jesus has solved the biggest problem of all, that is death, I mean, the reason why we're all afraid of this virus is because we're afraid of dying. But if Jesus has taken care of the greatest problem of all, that is sin and death, then why would we fe uh, fear the lesser fears in our life? Right, like not getting married or not being successful. If he has taken care of the greatest problem, follow my logic here. Why would be why would we be scared of the littler, uh, the smaller problems uh, that are in our lives? And so this is an opportunity for us. Courage is not um, saying I'm going to go to the Stewart Hotel even though no one is there. I'm going to worship God. Courage is not saying I'm not going to go stock up on food because that's what cowards do. Courage is not uh, having a a little view of this virus, that's not what courage is. Courage is driving deeper into the arms of God who cannot be infected by this virus and can solve our biggest problem of all, and that is sin and death. So let me close with uh, an illustration of my daughter, Logan. Every night, I should have brought it up here, but she sleeps with a teddy bear named Mr. Huggins. And we, give her, we gave her Mr. Huggins when she was around one years old as sort of a safety blanket. And so every night to this day, she still sleeps with Mr. Huggins. But the truth of the matter is there are times where Mr. Huggins does not make her feel safe, and so she'll wake up and come to Daddy and Mommy's room and wake us up because she's scared. 
because there is nothing like the safety of the presence of a father and mother. And similarly, what I would say is that we have an almighty father and we have access to him 24-7. Tim Keller says, who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water without getting their head chopped off? The only person that would dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the king's daughter or son. And similarly, we have access to God anytime we need, whenever we feel afraid and whenever we feel scared. And uh, so I don't know how long this is going to last, but this is an opportunity for us to uh, drive deeper into the arms of God and rather than to other sources that we build our confidence, our identity, and life upon. Let's pray together.